All right, good evening. We are on Lesson 9, The Holy Christian Church and Local Congregations. And here in Lesson 9, um, it's, it's one, of those, one of those lessons that we're actually going to spread out over probably three lessons over the course of this course um, because it's a fairly large topic, and tonight we've just got the, the basic introduction to it. So following along on page 61, this is in your catechism, um, covers catechism questions 205 to 215. There at the top of the page, on page 61, you have the third article of the Apostles' Creed, along with the explanation that accompanies it. It reads like this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own thinking or choosing, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth, and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church he daily and fully forgives all sins to me and all believers. On the last day he will raise me and all the dead, and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. So tonight's topic that you see on your screen, uh, the Holy Christian Church and local congregations. This is an important one. We're going to be starting in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you have your paper Bible, feel free to follow along there. I'll be pulling it up on the screen here in just a moment. And what we will see here in 1 Samuel chapter 16 um, are two things. First of all, that Samuel went to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem, where God said that he would find the next king of Israel. And God taught Samuel that God alone has the ability to both see and read hearts. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. <clears throat> Verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. 
We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy, with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. All right, so that is 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. Samuel is sent to anoint the next king of Israel. So this is Old Testament. This is um, fairly early, right around the year 1000, give or take, 1000 B.C. The Israelites, number one, the Israelites had lived in the Promised Land for approximately 350 years before they demanded a king over God's objection. 1 Samuel 8 talks about that. Well, we'll look at that briefly. That's in these auxiliary notes. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. He said, This is what the king who reigns over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and with his teams of horses, and they will have to run ahead of his chariots. He will make them serve as commanders of a thousand soldiers and as commanders of fifty. He will assign some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. He will assign some to make his weapons and the trappings for his chariots. He will take your daughters to serve as perfume makers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your, take your fields, your vineyards, scrolling down and over. Take your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, even the best of them, and give them to his officials. He will take a tenth of your seed and of all the produce of your vineyards, and he will give it to the members of his court and to his officials. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, and your donkeys, and he will use them to do his work. He will take a tenth from your flocks, and you will become his servants. In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. Instead they said, No, we want to have a king over us, so that we can also be like all the other nations, and our king can judge us and lead us to fight our battles. Samuel heard, all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to them, and appoint a king for them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Each of you go home to your own city. And the important part there, I don't know if we really talked about it in that particular reading, was that God said the people weren't rejecting Samuel, but they were rejecting God as their king. So approximately 300 years 350 years in the promised land before they demanded a king over God's objection. Samuel, or Saul rather, was their first king. Though his reign had started well, how far had his relationship with God fallen as he ruled as king? That's back in these verses we just read, looking at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? That's pretty serious, I'd say. <clears throat> God had rejected Saul as king. Saul was was chosen as king, and um, and Saul wasn't faithful to the Lord, and so God rejected him. Number two, read First Samuel nine verse two. What do we know about what do we know about Saul when he was chosen to be king? It's in our auxiliary passages here. 1 Samuel 9, verse 2. Kish, 
had a son named Saul, who was an impressive young man. Among all the men of Israel, there was not a better man than Saul. He was a head taller than all the people. I guess that must be noteworthy. What do we know about Saul? Well, he was handsome, he was very tall, he was impressive, had, um, had the presence, he looked like a king. <laughs> um, that didn't turn out very well. Understatement of the day. Number three, how did God make it clear that the next king would be different? As all these, all these men, all these sons of Jesse pass in front of him, looking at here in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7, Samuel thought, oh, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. In other words, this is the one. This is the one I'm supposed to anoint. But the Lord said, the Lord does not look at the things men looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So initially God said, well, this is a good choice. This one is Saul for the first king, and he looks like a king, and everybody's impressed by that. But the next king is going to be a king after God's own heart. The next king would not be chosen based on appearance, but on the condition of his heart. Um, so what is his, you know, his emotional state? Is he, is he a believer or not? Number four. Why did David's own father not consider David for the role of king? That was back in verse 11. Well, there's one more, he says, but uh, he's, he's the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. There he is. There's still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. He's, he's busy. He's doing the, the little kid job, and he's, while well, everybody else is here for the feast. <laughs> oh boy, he's the youngest. He was just the shepherd. He had the, the smallest task. And he was the one who had to be working while everybody else was at this important feast that Samuel had summoned. Number five, how does God differ from the way from people and the way he makes his decisions? We looked at that verse just a minute ago, verse seven, that God is able to read the heart. He knows things that we can't. Not just that we don't know, um, such as unknown knowledge. Yeah, God knows that. But he knows things that even we cannot perceive. He can read a heart when you and I cannot. He can see the actual motivation for why somebody does what they do, no matter what they say about it, you know? They might say, oh, I'm doing this because I'm a kind and generous person. But God might see their own heart. Oh, they're doing this um, for the gain, for personal gain for selfish reasons, as an example. <clears throat> Number six, as he observed each of Jesse's sons, Samuel learned that he couldn't see what was truly important. That was verse seven. To what extent can we judge people's faith by looking at them? This is an important one. That we can't see a person's faith, only God can read the heart. All we can do is go by what they say and by what they do. What, what, we, what I often term the confession of walk, what is it you say you believe, and, or what is it you do, rather. The confession of talk is what you say you believe. Confession of walk is what you do. And those two are supposed to line up. And even then, it's not a sure certainty that what you are saying you believe and what you are doing in line with that, that speech is actually what your heart wants. Is it prompted by faith? Someone might say, well, Pastor Hagen, I'm, I'm a Christian, and, and see all the charity that I do. 
And I, I recognize that. I, I want to believe you, but I can't, I can't judge hearts. All I can do is go by what you say and by what you do. Only the Lord can read a heart. And the important part here, I guess still on number six, that this also applies to the members of our churches, that we aren't able to see whether they actually believe or not. All we can do is go by what they say, by what they say they believe, and by what they do. Um, and then compare that to the Word of God. So our first key term at the top of page 62, the Holy Christian Church, or the Invisible Church. This is all believers of all times. Um, it, is the, it is invisible because we cannot tell who is a member and who is not, because we cannot see who has faith in Jesus and who does not. <clears throat> um, it's, yeah, it's invisible because I can't read hearts. Um, and there are an uncountable number that I haven't met this side of heaven, but that you and I will meet when Jesus takes us to heaven. Looking at your workbook there, there's a nice little diagram talking about the Holy Christian Church. Um, all believers, that is, they are holy, they are saints, they are holy because their sin is washed away by Jesus. They are Christian because they trust in Christ and the, the communion of saints. Um, communion meaning unity, that they are united in, by faith in Christ into one body. And this is an invisible unity that we cannot see exactly who is or who is not a member of this invisible holy Christian church, but it exists nonetheless. Underneath that box, or underneath that illustration, while the holy Christian church is invisible, we can see parts of it. Our church home is one of many, many different local congregations in the world. Sometimes these are called visible churches because unlike the Holy Christian Church, we can clearly see who is a member. So our key term, local congregation, um, or the term visible church, is a group of people who gather to worship and share God's word. It is visible because we can know who is a member and who is not. And this is important. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of flexibility in the way that we use church. We sometimes use the word church to describe a worship service. I'm going to church. Or church is at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning and 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Um, we might go use the word church to describe a place. I'm going to church to clean the church. Um, we might use church to describe the people. Oh, we're meeting with the church people. And we might use church to describe the church body. I'm a member of the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Church. Um, we might use church to describe a congregation. I, I attend Resurrection Lutheran Church. And so you put all those together. You might even say, I'm going to drive to church, for church, with the church, at Resurrection Lutheran Church, which is a member of the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Church. So there's a lot of flexibility. That's all I'm saying here. There's a lot of flexibility in that word church. But how do we use it? And how do we use it? This, this uh, local church is a people, group of people um, who gather together in a congregation. And you are either a member or you are not. And that membership is part of your confession of faith. That after going through a course like this, you say, I believe that what your church teaches is in line with scripture. And I want to publicly say that I believe the same thing as you. 
and I want to be a member of your church and share in supporting the ministry together with you, that, um, that we are working together for the same purpose. Okay? So it's only visible because we can know who is a member and who is not. Any questions, let me know. I'll put um, Pastor Hagen, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N at iCloud.com or 419-262-8280. You can check out the show notes for that as well. Number seven, even if we know someone in our church well, why can't we be 100% certain that he or she is a Christian? Well, it's possible that they're just pretending, or it's possible that they're lying about being a Christian, or they say all the right things, but they don't actually believe it. Um, and that just reinforces the bottom line that you and I cannot read a person's heart. All we can do is go by what they say and by what they do, their confession of talk and their confession of walk. Which gets to our key term, our next key term at the bottom of 62, is a hypocrite. That's somebody who pretends to be a Christian, but is not. As I said, when we started this lesson, this lesson takes um, is the first of probably three different lessons on a very similar topic. And so they're each a little bit shorter rather than trying to cover all this in one lesson. That would be pretty overwhelming. And it's kind of overwhelming to teach it that way too. So I'm glad we've got it kind of broken out into multiple different lessons. Top of 63. Why might somebody choose to be a hypocrite? In other words, why might somebody choose to you know, join a congregation even though they don't really believe what that congregation does or says? Well, a couple of different reasons. Might, it might be professionally advantageous um, to, to be able to say, I'm a member of this church. Um, might keep the peace at home. Might, you know... You do it for mom, <laughs> you know, like um, the, the top three days for church attendance typically are Christmas and Easter and Mother's Day. And it's always a toss up which one is nationwide is going to be um, the, the highest attendance of, of, of those three, Mother's Day or Easter or Christmas. If you take the average attendance across the nation at that day, it's always a toss up which one's going to be the best attended. And why Mother's Day? Well, if mom is the one who is the faithful churchgoer, then what better way to make mom happy than to go with her to church on Sunday? Why are you here? Well, it's Mother's Day. I'm here to, to make mom happy, and mom was excited and glad to have me in church with her. And that's fantastic. I would never discourage that. But I would talk to that person privately. You know that church is for you. That church is... Um, isn't just about making mom happy, but church is about how God is happy f with you for the sake of his dear son, Jesus Christ. So that's what we need to be talking about. Almost got off on a soapbox there. Any questions, let me know. Uh, Pastor Hagen, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N at iCloud.com. Our next, <clears throat> excuse me, our next reading is from 1 John chapter 4. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote three letters that are toward the end of the New Testament. If you're following along in your paper Bible, it is way to the end of the New Testament. Um, and John also wrote the book of Revelation. So John has uh, five books attributed to him, even though at the same time 
written by John, and you could also say they're written by God through John. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6, um, two summary points that you see in your workbook. First of all, John urges us to test to see whether the spirits we hear, that is, the spiritual teachers and what it is that they say, to test whether these things are true. And then secondly, we test these things by comparing them with the verbally inspired perfect word of God. That was what we talked about back in lesson 1. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. All right. Um, talking about testing to see if what we are hearing is true. Number nine. One of the things we need to do before we join a congregation is to test the spirits. That is, to test and see whether the church is teaching the truth. How do we test spirits? <laughs> Whoa, good question. Well, we compare what they say with what God says in the Bible. And that presupposes a little bit of knowledge about the Bible. Um, and I mean, you have to be able to have to read your Bible to know what it says, I suppose. And, um, and for somebody to clearly say, well, this is what we believe. And also, it's helpful, um, like in a course like this or in other Bible classes, it's helpful to say what we do believe and what we don't believe. And to draw out those distinctions between the two. And why is it that we believe what we do believe and we believe that this other statement, this other belief is false. Um, so it's, it's not just enough to say, this is what we believe, you know. We also have to be able to say, this is what we don't believe. And that's part of the responsibility of your pastor. And that's part of the, re the expectation that every church member should have of their pastor and their church. So when we test a church's teaching by comparing them with the Bible, we will find the church to be either orthodox or heterodox. Um, these words, I don't know if you've encountered them before, at least in this context. Ortho, like orthodontist, um, is the one who straightens your teeth. And dox um, is actually a, a word for teaching, like doctrine. Um, so ortho, meaning straight. Dox, meaning teaching. So straight teaching. Um, the church is to either going to be straight teaching or um, heterodox, other teaching. <laughs> yeah. um, so that term orthodox it means a church that teaches God's word completely accurately. And it's important to note, um, don't fall for the hype. Don't fall for the advertising. Just because a church or church body happens to have the word orthodox in their title does not mean necessarily that they are orthodox in their teaching. It doesn't mean that they are necessarily straight and biblical in their teaching. Um, 
they just want to advertise themselves as orthodox in the hopes that people won't explore any further than that. Um, so some churches that use the word orthodox in their name do not meet this definition of the term. So how do we define it? Um, orthodox is a church that teaches God's word completely accurately. Ortho meaning straight, dox meaning teaching. Compare that with heterodox or other teaching, a church that doesn't teach God's word accurately. Pretty simple. Um, and those, those terms are helpful because it, it provides us a kind of a shorthand way to talk about, um, talk about different concepts. Number 10. Read how Jesus describes false teachers in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. How dangerous is a wolf in sheep's costume? Right here on your screen. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And that word fruit is um, what we previously referred to as the confession of walk. Um, the result of their teaching or how they live their lives is going to unveil them as, as a false teacher or as a true teacher, as, as heterodox or orthodox. Okay. So how dangerous is a wolf in sheep's costume? Well, he could easily kill the sheep. That's why he's there, to kill and to eat. Um, to take what he can get away with and really destroy and do the devil's work. That's a terrifying thought, but it's true. That's the reality. Number 11, how dangerous is someone who teaches God's word improperly? Even more. False teacher can threaten a person's eternal life, whereas you know just a wolf might mean some loss for the the rancher. Um, he's going to lose a few sheep. Um, that sheep, okay, it's an animal. It's going to die maybe and get eaten by a, by a wolf. But the point that Jesus is making is that you are have an eternal soul. That at the end of time, your body and soul are going to be reunited again even after you die, you know, in the resurrection of, of all people. And, and eternity is forever. <laughs> um, and a false teacher, somebody who leads you away from what the Bible says or convinces you that parts of the Bible don't apply or that some things aren't as serious as the Bible says they are, that person could be the tool that the devil uses to destroy your faith. That's why this is important. Read Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Um, how much of God's word did he teach us to command us to teach others? Matthew 28. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So how much of God's word? Well, all of it. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Um, what we might think of as the, as the major concepts as well as the smaller details. Um, that they all line up and point really to Jesus. Number 13. If we find that a church is not teaching God's word completely accurately, 
or if we find that a church is a heterodox church, or is, even if that church is teaching accurately, but it's still a member of a heterodox church body, um, where the, the official stance of the church body is something that goes against what God's word says, what should we do with that church? Read Romans 16, verse 17. And there are many other verses like this, but uh, this one is one of the more succinct. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching that you have learned, and keep away from them. So watch out and keep away. That's serious. We should keep away from it and go somewhere else. What should we do? Pretty, I mean, it's uh, it's simple in concept, um, but in practice, this can be a little bit more difficult because a heterodox church or a heterodox leader, heterodox church body isn't going to stand there and say, "We're trying to destroy your faith," um, or you know, they aren't going to be carrying a sign that says "false teacher." Um, no, they're going to present themselves in the best possible light and generally, you know, say, well, this is more loving and we have a better understanding and a better grasp of how to apply God's word today. And, and it, it's, in a sense, it's comparable to politics where the politician will try to present himself or herself in the best possible light up until election day. But then once they're voted into office, then all bets are off. <laughs> the promises, the campaign promises fall by the wayside. Um, the false teacher or the heterodox church body will say all sorts of things that sound wonderful, that sound encouraging, that sound good. Um, but when the rubber hits the road, they contradict the Bible. And and one of the worst ones, I guess, not to not to belabor the point, but one of the worst lies is tries to pit the Bible against itself. Tries to say, well, the Bible as it stands, as you read it, the Bible isn't as loving as it should be. And so we need to update it a little bit with our better and higher understanding. Um, and that's, that's disingenuous, but it certainly is something that I've heard a lot. And it's something that we need to be watching out for. Because the heart and core of the message of, of Scripture is that Jesus died and rose to pay for the sins of all people. And if you ever doubted how much your God loves you, cares about you, then go back to that. Okay? Our key term at the top of page 64, church fellowship. We join to work and worship with Christians with whom we have complete agreement on God's word. Um, and so, in that, in that sense, this, is, this has two aspects with it. That we work with those, uh, we, that we don't participate when it comes to, you know, anything that is uniquely Christian or uniquely church. Um, we aren't going to cooperate and participate with somebody unless we have complete agreement based on the Word of God. Um, if we do not have that complete agreement, then we're not going to, we don't have different levels. Like, it's not... I'm going to pray with you, but I'm not going to commune with you, okay? Um, it's all, all a unit. Either we are united in faith, and then we are free to do everything together, or we are not united in faith, and in good conscience, I can't support your ministry and your work, 
even though it might be of some external good. Um, that box in red on the top of page 64 talks about church fellowship and practice. When we are attending a worship service of a group that we do not agree with, perhaps for family or friendship reasons like a funeral or a wedding, it would be important to remember the principles of church fellowship. What does this mean? That we want to attest to what we believe by what we do and by what we don't do. So in that service, um, one of the ways that you might demonstrate this is refrain from doing anything worship-related, such as praying with them or singing hymns or communing at the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper with them, but we'll do so respectfully. You know, we aren't, I'm not there to make a scene. I'm there because somebody I care about has passed away or somebody I care about is getting married. Um, we quietly sit or stand along with the rest of the congregation to show respect, but not not going along by demonstrating some sort of agreement and some sort of consistency of belief that isn't there. Um, that you and I as Christians don't have the option to condone somebody else's false belief. And this, this is a little bit different in the, in the secular world. Um, you know, it's, in some senses, it's easier to work with a secular organization than with another church because the secular organization doesn't have an expectation of a religious element to it. But with a church, um, everything that we do demands, first of all, a complete agreement on what we believe. That those two go hand in hand, and it's very simple, very straightforward, that we want to be consistent in our confession of talk by our confession of walk. That our confession of talk, what we say we believe, is exercised in our confession of walk, what it is that we do. Number 14, and of course, any questions, check out the show notes for my contact information. I'd love to chat with you about this more. Number 14, when we note that a person or church is not teaching God's word accurately, what should we do for that person or church? Read Ephesians 4, 11 to 15, and Titus 3, 10 and 11. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, going to the top of the next column. Jesus himself gave the apostles, as well as the prophets, as well as the evangelists, as well as the pastors and teachers, for the purpose of training the saints for the work of serving, in order to build, in order to build up, there we are, in order to build up the body of Christ. This is to continue until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, resulting in a mature man with a stature reaching to the measure of the fullness of Christ. The goal is that we would no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching when people use tricks and invent clever ways to lead us astray. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we would in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head. And Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, because you know that such a man is twisted and is sinning. He condemns himself. In other words, yeah, this is serious. This is something we need to be consistent with between what we say we believe and what we do with that belief. So when we note that a person or a church is not teaching God's word accurately, what should we do for that person or church? Well, we warn and correct the person or group in love, but if they will not listen, we move on.
give three reasons why we would want to warn them. I'll just list these for you here. Number one is concern for their souls, concern for them personally and individually. Uh, number two, concern for the people they teach because there are people under false doctrine and wherever false doctrine is taught and permitted, Jesus doesn't get the glory that he deserves and people get hurt and people get burned out on church. They think they've encountered a Christian church and then after a couple years they're like, no, forget this, I'm done. And then it might be a long time, if ever, before they set foot back in church again because they thought, I tried that and and all it did was make me feel guilty and like I couldn't measure up and it was frustrating. That's not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> that Jesus is not glorified by false teaching and people get hurt by false teaching. So out of concern for the souls of, of other people, especially the leadership in that church, uh, concern for the people they teach. And so that we concern for ourselves, so that we are protected from their teaching. Um, bottom of page 64 has that diagram. God wants us to test church groups how they teach his word. If they teach his word faithfully, that means we join them in, in fellowship and in education and in mission work. If they don't teach his word faithfully, if they teach God's word impurely, we avoid them. So the error cannot spoil our faith and to warn those in error about the danger to their faith. Good little summary on that one. Some of these, some of these diagrams aren't as good as they probably should be, <laughs> but it's, it's a good start. Um, and some of them really capture it well. This one captured it very well, I think. Number 16. Why wouldn't we want to join other Christians for worship or work in the church if we are not in full agreement with them? And you can review the statement about closed communion in Lesson 8. Well, if we join together with them, that implies that there is no error or that the error doesn't matter. But the way God describes it in his word is that error is like a little bit of yeast that works through the whole batch of dough. Like you put a little bit of yeast at one end of the, the dough and then you let it sit for a day. And then all of a sudden the whole dough, the whole batch of dough is expanded and overflowing on your counter. Like, oh no, it's not supposed to be like this. Well, that's the false teaching is described like yeast. That even if it's just a little bit in one little area, it's going to spread and it's going to spoil the entire thing. Any questions? Um, maybe I'll put that right here. I'll duplicate this slide. I'd love to talk with you about this more. Um, if you have any questions or follow-up, um, Pastor Hagen, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N at iCloud.com or 419-262-8280. We're going to conclude with our connection question. A common principle in modern society is acceptance. Certainly we show respect for all people because Jesus died for all and he wants all people to be saved. Why would it be dangerous, however, give the impression that we accept teachings that are against what God teaches in his word. 
And I like I like the distinction here, where I I love you as a person. I I, I love you. I care about you, but I do not agree with what you're teaching. Because what you're teaching will destroy faith. It leads people away from Jesus. That false teaching of any kind is dangerous. It threatens the faith of those who hear, believe, and support the false teaching. So in love, we want others to know the truth of what God has said and done. Uh, your homework is listed for you there on page 65. Review those pages in Luther's Catechism, 203 to 212, 371 to 373. There's a number of new terms tonight, and then a few more pages in Luther's Catechism. And also a reminder um, to check out our podcast. We actually have three. It's like our own little podcast network. Just search RWJ in your phone's podcast app, or you go to our website, raisedwithjesus.com. Uh, the first one, going from left to right on your screen, is RWJ Membership. And that is all the recordings from this membership class are hosted there. And I think that's the only thing that we've got at, at, that, mem at that RWJ membership podcast. Uh, the one in the middle is a, the Raised with Jesus, the, the original podcast. Um, call it a Biblically Lutheran podcast for Toledo and beyond. Daily Bible reading, uh, sermons, and some commentary on religious and cultural issues. Um, we're also working together with Water of Life Lutheran Church in, of Racine and Caledonia, Wisconsin. And then thirdly, um, RWJ Small Group. Sermons and other episodes for small group discussion. Listen to it ahead of time and discuss with a friend or a couple of friends. Start with episode number one. So that's going to wrap us up for tonight. I'll put my contact info right here at the end again. If you have any questions or you're wondering, Pastor Hagen, I, I don't know how to use my phone. <laughs> this is really confusing because it's technology. Um, drop me a line and I'll help you through it. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless your day.